So my favorite NBA player uh, used to be LeBron James, but now it is Mo Harkless. And I know most of you probably don't even know who Mo Harkless is, but he's about to become your favorite NBA player too because this story is so funny. So Mo Harkless plays for the Portland Trailblazers and had a clause in his contract that if on the year he shot over 35% from three-point range, that he would get a $500,000 bonus, which just let that sink in for a minute. Like, can you imagine a half-million-dollar bonus? Anyways, so the, the NBA season is 82 games, and after the 75th game, Harkless was shooting 35.1% from three. Do you know what he did for the next seven games? He shot zero threes. He went from shooting five to six three-pointers a game to the last seven games shooting zero because he didn't want to miss. And in fact, if you go back and watch some of, some of his team's games, you can actually see him catch the ball near the, or outside of the three-point line wide open and dribble in two steps to shoot a two to make sure that he does not miss the three to lose the bonus. In fact, their last game of the year, they lost 103 to 100, and he did that three different times. So it could have been the difference, but no one can blame him, right? Like a half million dollar bonus to not shoot a three for the last seven games of the year. I I, there's not many things I wouldn't do for a half million dollars. Like, like a half million dollars, I wouldn't shoot another three for the rest of my life for like 50 bucks. Like, I mean, come on. So no one can blame it. So I, here, here's, here's the reason I tell you that. I, I tell you that to tell you that my contract here at the church has no bonus clauses, has no incentive clauses. Maybe it could be like, if your sermons last less than 25 minutes, you know, like something like that, like, Keep them under 24 minutes and we'll talk. But I, I tell you that because I don't want you to think that when the church talks about money, there's a clause in my contract or something like that where if offering doubles, I can have a 20% commission. It, it's not as if every week my paycheck is a certain percentage of what the offering is, you know, just based on how much we take in. When we talk about money, I want you to know, and I, and I wish with my whole heart that you would believe that this is not about what we want from you, but when we talk about money, it's because we want something for you. And what we want for you in this case is financial freedom. Like, like for some of you, like I said earlier, that, that, those two words don't exist together. Because when you think about finances, the last thing you think about is freedom. When you think about finances, you think about stress, you think about fights, when you think about finances, you think it just kind of gives you the shakes, it makes you anxious. For some of you, financial freedom isn't something you'd, you'd really want because you'd rather pay the extra money to have the fancy hood ornament to impress the people you don't really even care about. You'd rather pay the extra money and go into debt to have the thing you think you want. For some of you, that doesn't even sound like a thing, but I, I want you to know this, that I think for all of us, and I say us because the Stroop family gets included in this, that if we saw our way to financial freedom, the entire area could change. Mason, Bracken, Fleming, Robertson, Brown, Adams County could be completely different, even if just one church said, we are going to find our way to financial freedom to live the way God intended us. 
And so I want to challenge you that for the next five weeks, as we talk about the ABCs of financial freedom, I want to challenge you either to make every effort not to miss one of these five, or if you have to miss or or miss for some reason, to make sure that you go back and listen online. If you're interested in ordering the book, The ABCs of Financial Freedom, that this sermon series is based out of, it's written by a guy named Barry Cameron, whose church of about 10,000 people is is a completely debt-free church that operates out of something like a $45 million facility in Dallas, Texas, because everything has to be bigger in Texas, you know, but like, but the church itself is completely debt-free, and thousands upon thousands of people at his church are debt-free, and it's because they put into practice the ABCs of financial freedom. You see, here's the thing about the ABCs of financial freedom, and Dave Ramsey will tell you the same thing, Larry Burkett would tell you the same thing, and Barry Cameron himself tells you the same thing. This isn't new information, There's no secret formula, there's no magic pill, there's no red button to push. What we're going to talk about over the next few weeks is, as Dave Ramsey says, financial advice your grandmother would give you. So when we talk about this together, I want you to know that I'm probably not going to break any new ground, but my hope and my prayer is that you will see how simple it really is for you and for your family to take hold of your finances and to find financial freedom. So how, what are the ABCs of financial freedom? I'll, I'll give them to you right here. You can just, you know, zone out after this, but they go like this. The first thing we talk about is attitude and how we view our money. Next week, we'll talk about the bondage of financial, of, of debt and how that keeps us from being financially free. The week after that, we're going to talk about some choices that we make of being generous, and we're going to, that's the week that gets a little touchy because we're going to talk specifically about giving and generosity in week three. Week four is Mother's Day, and you don't typically talk about money on Mother's Day, but we're going to talk about some decisions that families can make that will affect the, their family for generations. And then on the last week, on May 21st, we're going to talk about some encouragement for you to make this journey towards financial freedom. And and I'm telling you, I, I know I tell you this all the time about how excited I am or about how important this is, but I firmly believe that for our church, this could truly change the future and the outlook of our church in us helping to reach the 50,000 because we are a group of people who right now, a lot of us are financially constrained and bound. And so we don't want to see financial freedom so that I can drive a nicer car or so that you can drive a nicer car. We want to see financial freedom so we as a church can make an even bigger impact in our community in reaching the 50,000 people around us who don't know Jesus. It's so interesting to me when, when churches talk about money and when we talk about money and we get a hard time for it. It's interesting because money is one of the very few sermon topics that really affects everyone in the room. Like if we talk about family, there are single people and there are are kids and there are people in this room who are to talk about parenting or to talk about marriage. There's so many topics that don't touch everyone. And we could talk about addiction, but there are people who, who don't struggle with addiction. And we can talk about this sin and that sin and people aren't touched. But every person in this room has to deal with money on a regular basis. And if the statistics are true, 80 to 90% of the people in this room who deal with money on a regular basis have fights in their marriage about it and have struggles that they aren't willing to admit. In fact, something like 75 to 80% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck, meaning that they are financially as strapped as could be and the opposite of free. 
And so I want you to hear me out that when we talk about money, it's not that we want something from you. We want something for you. And we want freedom for you. And so today, as we talk about attitude, it's a really important, a important bridge for us to cross to understand that really when we talk about debt, when we talk about generosity, when we talk about management, all of those kinds of things, those don't matter nearly as much as us talking about our attitude. You see, our attitude has to be one of understanding that we're not the owners of our money. Let me, let me explain it to you this way. There, you guys are familiar in the Bible with the story of David, right? David kills Goliath, and then he goes on to be king. He becomes one of the wealthiest and most powerful kings of all time. He builds himself this spectacular palace, and it's this amazing thing that people come from all over to see. But David comes to a realization that he's built this spectacular palace, but over there in the corner of his town is the temple, and the temple is made out of a tent, and so he goes to God in prayer, and he says, God, I realize that you don't have a palace like I do, and that's not right. And he says, so I'd like to build you a palace bigger than mine, grander than mine. Let me build you a temple like none other. But God tells him, no. And what David was hoping was going to be his legacy, what David was hoping was going to be the thing that he was most known for, God tells him he can't do. God says, you have too much blood on your hands from the wars you have fought you can't build my temple for me. And so you would think that if David thought this was the most important thing he would ever do, the most important aspect of his life, that he'd be angry, and that he would respond harshly. But instead, in the book of First Chronicles, listen to how he responds to God telling him no. Check out his attitude here. It says, David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. Everything in heaven and earth is yours, Lord. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom and, the, and you are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you, and you are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and to give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks, and we praise your good name. And David closes by saying, who am I, and who are my people, that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. And David comes before the throne of God, and he says, God, I realize that you're saying no, and I can't be upset because the only reason I have the money to do this in the first place is because you gave it to me. David writes later in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything, everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And so for us, the reality comes that what we're doing is we've been taking the wrong approach to money maybe our whole lives. You see, the issue isn't that we aren't spending it wrong. The issue isn't just that we're saving it wrong. The issue is, is that our heart has never really accepted the fact that God has given us this gift. You see, what happens is we tend to believe 
these lies about our money. And there's three basic lies that I think most of us tend to believe and tend to follow, even if we wouldn't admit it, our, our actions and our decisions reflect these. So here's, here's the first one. The first lie that we all believe is that we all believe that all the church talks about is money, right? Because in your head, you're going, uh, if I remember correctly, we just had a sermon series on money in November, and every Sunday they take up an offering, and they always talk about money, and they always want money, right? Like, that's, that's the tendency that we have to believe. But I want you to know that every time I talk about money from the stage, I have two rules, first and foremost. The first rule, and we already covered this, is that I don't want something from you. I want something for you. Right? There is no benefit for me. There's no personal benefit if if the offering triples tomorrow. It doesn't make a difference. What matters far more is that you start to see the blessing that God can give to you. The second rule that I always have when we talk about money is that we spend more time talking about how you manage your money than guilting you into giving more. Because how you manage your money is equally important to how much you give because God has entrusted you to be a manager of your money, right? So that's the first lie that we believe. The second lie that even, even super awesome spiritual people such as myself tend to believe this one. Some, I was kidding. It was a joke, right? Just relax. Um, is that money problems go away when I have enough. But we're going to make two hip-hop references in the next minute, and the first one is, everyone knows the truth is, more money, more problems, right? It's this lie that everyone believes that if I just could get my foot in the door, if I just can get that one raise, if I can just get that next promotion, if I can just get this one thing, then I'll be fine, then I'll be happy. Johnny Depp once said that money doesn't buy you happiness, but it buys you a big enough yacht to sail right up to it. And he's wrong. The famous rapper, R. Kelly, once said that only the loot can make me happy. Well, if you know much about R. Kelly's life, you know that he made a lot of money and he still wasn't very happy. You catch that? Two rap references in one minute. This is a good day. I didn't even have to use my AK. There's three. How we go? All right. The thing is, is that we all believe just a little bit more, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. But the truth is far different. Solomon, who's David's son, follows after him as king and becomes the wisest man to ever live. And he writes in the book of Ecclesiastes, he says, uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 5, he says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. And so our attitude can't be that if we had a little more, but rather our attitude has to be something totally different. The third lie that I think we all have a tendency to believe from time to time might be the most damaging lie of all. And this, this third lie is very difficult, but it's, it's my money and I can do with it what I want, right? I earned it, I made it, I'm the worker, I can do with it what I want. Jesus tells a story in the Gospels of a man who has a bumper crop year, and he has way more than he's ever had, and he decides rather than, rather than doing something with it, what he could do is just tear down his old barn, build a bigger barn, and hold on to all of this for as long as he can to make as much money as possible. Well, in the story Jesus tells, God comes to him and says, you fool, tonight is your end, and he, and he just dies the night after he finishes his barn. 
And it's not because God hates wealth. It's not because God condemns making money. He takes him because the man's attitude is, I earned this, I can do with it what I want. But God is trying to teach him something different, and he's teaching you and me through this story something different. What he's trying to teach us is what James says in James chapter 1. Do not be deceived, brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like the shifting shifting shadows. Because this is the reality of our money. Is that the money you and I have, the money you and I have earned, is only ours because God allows it to be. So here's some truth, and I, and I challenge you, if, if this is something that you struggle with, which you can admit it's okay because you're breathing today, so money is a struggle in your life. If this is something you struggle with, I want to challenge you to write this down, write these three truths down, take a picture of the slide with your phone, we'll post them online later, like whatever, whatever, we'll, we'll mail them to you in the mail if you want, like whatever works for you. But I want to challenge you to write these three truths down and really start to implement them in your life. The first truth is this, is that we need to be reminded that God is the one who gives us the ability to make any money. It says in Deuteronomy that you may say to yourself, my power and strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. And what a promise that is. That you will surely be destroyed if you forget where it came from. See, here's here's the honest truth. Like, I know almost all of you, pretty well. And I know what you do for a living, and I know kind of how you're wired. And I can say with full confirmation that you all are wired by God to do what you're doing. And the reason you are good at your job, the reason you find success in your field, the reason you do what you do so well is because God made you to do that. Is because God wired you in a way that you can do the thing that you are doing to make an impact, to change the world, to make a difference, even in just one life. And so whatever it is you're doing, you're doing it well, and you're doing it well because God made you the way he made you. God gave you the ability to manage the people. He gave you the ability to teach the lesson. He gave you the ability to, t- to, to lead the group, to, to take the charge, whatever it is. God gave you those abilities to do the job that you get paid to do. I tell people all the time, one of the reasons I do this job is because I literally couldn't live with myself if I did anything else. I could make more money, I could have better hours, I could do anything else, but I couldn't live with myself if I wasn't doing this job, if I wasn't preaching and teaching and doing what I do, because God wired me to do that. And I know the only reason I get to do this job is because God has seen fit not to strike me dead for the lame jokes that I make all the time, but it's coming. And the same is true for you, is that the reason you have what you have, the reason you've earned what you've earned is because God gave you the ability to do so. Truth number two that we all need to know is that God has the power, and this is so scary, is that God has the power to dry up all of my money, 
at a moment's notice. I don't, I don't ever say God won't, but I don't think he's in the business of doing this very often, but you've probably seen it happen. And the reason that we, we speak that truth is to remind ourselves that it is not ours. In the Old Testament, there's a story of a king named Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, you might know him best from the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refuse to bow down to an idol, and so he throws them into a fiery furnace. After he throws them into a fiery furnace, God protects them, and because God protected them overnight from the fiery furnace, he then declares that the entire nation will worship their God, the true God, our God. Well, after a couple of years, because the nation has done what God asked and because the, na and the nation becomes prosperous and Nebuchadnezzar becomes a wildly successful king because God is blessing him because he's been faithful. Well, what happens is Nebuchadnezzar forgets that God was blessing him and Nebuchadnezzar starts to get a big head. And so Nebuchadnezzar starts boasting and bragging and showing off with what he can do. And Nebuchadnezzar's life doesn't end with him as a prosperous, wealthy king. Nebuchadnezzar's life ends with him as a driveling maniac up on the roof of the building who no one knows what to do with because God took away what he had given him because Nebuchadnezzar forgot where it came from. And you can say, well, that's just an Old Testament story. It's one of those things. But I think you too can know that you maybe have even seen in your own life when you start to lose that gratitude and when your attitude starts to shift away from the thanking of God for the blessings, that things change. Truth number three is that giving to God is the only way out of financial struggle. Now hear me out. I didn't say that making big offerings is the way to get a bigger bank account, did I? I didn't say that consistently giving exactly 10% is the only way to ever possibly overcome financial struggles. Because when I say those kinds of things, what, I, what those things are, it's called the prosperity gospel, that if you just give to God, he'll make you rich. I don't promise that. There's people on TV who do. They're wrong. You can follow them if you want. But what I do say is that when you give your finances to God, not just putting them in the offering plate, not just throwing money in as it goes by, but fully giving over of the managing of your money and saying, God, I want to do this the way you want me to do this. When you follow the principles biblically that God has laid out of our finances, you will find a way out of your struggles. And I'll tell you, I will never promise you that giving your finances over to God means a bigger bank account, means a more secure retirement, means a bigger house or a bigger car. It means none of those things. In fact, I typically tend to expect the opposite. That if you're truly living financially a biblical way, that reality will be that you're probably not going to have a ton of money, but you'll always have enough. That you're probably never going to drive the nicest car, but you'll always have a steady one. Giving your finances over to God doesn't mean everyone else in the street is going to be jealous of what you have, but it means you're going to be the only one who doesn't lay awake at night worrying about it. You see, the reality of our attitude is this, is that when we give, God shows us how joyful life really is. When we give up holding on to our finances ourselves, God opens our eyes to the reality of what's happening around us. Because when we change our attitude... When we change our mindset, everything else changes. 
So one of my favorite candies is Runtz. Anybody else a Willy Wonka fan? Runtz, man, there's the lime green, there's the purple, there's the heart, there's the orange, but then there is the biggest flaw of any candy of all time, and what is it? The banana runt. That's right. It is, it is equivalent to eating vomit. I don't know how else to describe the banana runt, but it is gross. So I love, it's one of my favorite candies, right? Like anytime I see it, I will probably buy it. And so what I've discovered is that Abel, who's now three, doesn't get very much candy. So Abel doesn't know well enough to know, and you all better not tell him, that the banana runt is disgusting. He loves it. So this week we were at the Amish store and we bought one of those big containers of runs because I'm an idiot. And we bought it and we had it in a bowl at our house and Abel said, Daddy, can I have some runs? And I said, I'll make you a deal, buddy. You can have all the banana runs. So he walked around all week saying, Daddy, don't eat my banana runs. Daddy, don't eat my banana runs. Dude, you don't have to worry about it one bit, right? So the other day I grabbed a handful of runs and I accidentally had a banana one in my hand. And so we're sitting there watching TV, and I'm eating runs because you all have no respect for me anyway, so that's what I'm doing. We're watching TV and eating runs, and Abel sees a banana runt in my hand and says, Daddy, can I have it? And it was too early for adults to be eating snacks, let alone children. And, um, and again, there goes the respect thing. But, but uh, I'm eating the runs, and I, and I have the banana runt in my hand, but he can't have it because it's before lunchtime. And I say, nobody, you can't, sorry. And he just flips out, right? You said all the runs, all the bananas were mine. That banana's mine. That's my banana. That's mine. And I just about lost it on him. I was like, dude, I'm the one who has a job and who paid for these runs in the first place. I'm the one who gives you the runs if I want to or not. You don't have any right to throw a fit about the banana run. I'll throw every single one of them away if I want to. And then I stopped because I realized that when I shake my fist at God and say, why are the bills coming up short? And when I shake my fist at God and say, why does he have a bigger check? Why does he have a bigger house? Why does she have a bigger car? Whatever it is. And I'm saying, why do you manage these things the way you do? And he just looks at me and he says, dude, because he calls me dude. You're an idiot. The only reason you have any of this is because I let you have it. And I'll take it all away. And so that's my, my challenge to you, is as this week, as you go through the checkbook, as this week, as you check on online and you look at your bank account and you start to think, God, why are you taking this away? And you start to realize, because it wasn't mine in the first place. Because it wasn't mine in the first place. See, here's the reality of our life, guys. The reality is, is that God promises us freedom, and he promises us freedom far beyond financial freedom. See, one of the very first things that Jesus does when he starts his ministry at age 30 is he goes to a temple, and it's there that he's, he's there's a crowd gathered, and he begins to preach, and he opens up the scroll to the book of Isaiah, and he says, he has anointed me to free the captives. And he has anointed me to preach the good news. And he closes the scroll and he says, this is being fulfilled in your sight today. And the people are, are shocked. 
But Jesus knows the reality of what he's there for, because what he's there for isn't to just talk about money, isn't just to live a little bit. What Jesus is there for in that very moment is to free all of us from the bondage that sin creates. What Jesus is there for is that three years after that fact, he will go to Calvary, and it's there on a cross that he will hang and die. And his death and his burial and his, and his resurrection happened to give you and me freedom. Not just freedom financially, but freedom for all of our lives to break the sin and break the chains that hold down on each of us, to give us each the hope to know that this world we live in is only temporary. This money that we earn is only temporary. These struggles that we have are only temporary. The promise that Jesus gives is a promise of freedom for all of eternity. And so I'm going to be real straight with you. For some of you, the financial freedom isn't going to come. And it's not going to come because you don't practice the steps that we put into place. It's not going to come because you weren't one of the people who ordered the book or you weren't the people who, who, followed, who missed a week. For some of you, financial freedom isn't going to come because you've never bothered to commit your life to Jesus in the first place. And so for some of you, financial freedom isn't going to be a reality because spiritual freedom has never happened for you. It's because you've been hanging on for a long time and it's time for you to make the commitment to Jesus to say, I want the freedom you have for all of my life. Because what happens is every week, we take a moment and we take the bread that represents his body broken for us and we take the cup that represents his blood poured out for us and we are reminded that he promised us freedom. But we have to be willing to take the steps to be given that freedom. So maybe during this next minute or so, as you're thinking through, am I financially free? Is my life free? Does this fit me? Maybe it's time for you to think, has Jesus ever really made me free? And if you're not sure, I want to talk to you about that later today. I don't want you to leave that question hanging anymore. 